The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. And now let's open up our copy of God's Word to uh, Genesis 29. If you need a Bible, grab one there in the rack in front of you. And we're opening together to Genesis 29. The end of Genesis 29 is on page 24 of uh, the copy of the Bible in the pew rack. And we're reading the end of Genesis 29 uh, through Genesis 30. And verse 24, and as you're opening there, uh, I will tell you that uh, you're really in for something this morning uh, because Genesis 29 and most of Genesis 30 is just really something uh, in terms of biblical narrative, historical detail, and quite frankly, uh, the apex of family drama. So uh, if, if you're someone that is entertained by uh, drama, uh, television, streaming, movies, whatever. Uh, modern writers have nothing when it comes to the drama that's in the scriptures. So uh, I want to encourage you to pay good attention to what's happening here as we see the family story of the people of God advancing and God at work in the midst of our mess. Because that's what God is always doing. God is always at work in the midst of our mess. So if you've got your Bible open there in Genesis 29, we'll begin reading at verse 31. But first, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures. O Lord, you tell us that, uh, that every word that you have given to us in the Scriptures is good and profitable for us, for correction and for teaching and for training in righteousness, that we might be equipped. And so, Lord, we pray now that as we turn to your word here, that, that you would indeed Teach us, train us, correct us, that you would make us into the people that are pleasing in your sight as we pursue the faith of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so, Lord, reveal even him to us upon these pages as we see you working out your gracious purposes amidst your people. We are glad, Lord, to be counted among your people. So bless now the reading and hearing and preaching of your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the word of God, Genesis 29, at verse 31, under the heading, Jacob's children. This is the word of God. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, He has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan. 
Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister, and I have prevailed. So she called his name Nephthali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. In the days of the wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter that you have taken my husband away? Did you take away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, Then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night, and God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Then Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. And Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. And so she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So may He write His truth in our hearts today. And uh, I, I told you that you're in really for something because this has far more drama than any daytime soap opera, any multiple season streaming show, uh, and, and usually those shows either get canceled or they add season after season, adding more and more conflict, but you've got all the conflict you need right here uh, in this chapter, layers upon layers of character dramas and interwoven issues and conflict amidst Jacob and his two wives, additionally two servants, and now 12 children. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, I want to ask the question, what should we see in this text? And then what should we say about it? And then what should we do about it? What should we see? What should we say? Uh, What should we do? Uh, Well, I want to get into some of the background context along the way here, but what we should see in this text is primarily three characters, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Jacob is the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac. Abraham, Isaac. Jacob is the third generation patriarch. Jacob is the man who has manipulated his way through life thus far and has come away from his home country into the country of his uncle Laban and secured not just one but two wives, but unintentionally. But Jacob the manipulator here in this chapter is going to finally find himself in a situation that he can't manipulate. The great schemer is going to find himself really quite helpless, and God is going to teach him. And God is, in fact, disciplining and correcting Jacob as he has so far. We also find Leah, Jacob's first wife, frustrated but blessed of God. Frustrated because she is the wife that Jacob didn't want. 
She is the wife that Jacob was manipulated into having by her father, Laban. Nevertheless, she is blessed of God. And there is also Leah's younger and more beautiful sister, Rachel, Jacob's second wife, who is the woman that he wanted to marry all along, his preferred wife. But Rachel finds herself barren and attempting to manipulate God's purposes until she is finally going to learn to trust in the Lord. Now, don't mistake what's happening here. It's actually quite obvious. This chapter is telling something of a baby war between two sisters. Uh, and, and to our modern senses and sensibilities, we think, what, what in the world is wrong with these people? Uh, not, forget, not remembering, of course, that these people are fundamentally our people as the people of God. So what do we make of all of this? What do we make of this baby war between the wives of Jacob? I want to first observe the high points along the way in what we should see about this text, summarizing it as we go. Uh, there is, of course, this obvious conflict that is driven between Jacob's favoritism toward Rachel. In uh, chapter 29, verse 31, it says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Jacob resents uh, his father-in-law Laban's actions. He resents Leah, his first wife, that he never intended to take. Back in chapter 29, we saw all of this. And Jacob loves Rachel, but each woman wants what the other one has. Hence the conflict. Rachel, who does have Jacob's affection, wants children with Jacob, but doesn't have them. And Leah has children, but wants Jacob's affection and doesn't have it. Each woman wants what the other one has, and each sets out to gain what they don't have as their desires are fueled by envy and manipulation, promoting a bigger mess than Jacob already had on his hands. And interestingly, the story can be told by way of the names of the children. And actually, the ESV text has several footnotes along the names of the children. And down in the apparatus, you see the explanation. And we'll see those as we go. The story can be told by the names of the children. First of all, Leah's first son, Reuben, which means see a son. Look at verse 32 of chapter 29 there. In verse 32, it says, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, that is the affliction of not being wanted, not being desired as uh, Jacob's wife, uh, she says, he has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. The name Reuben means, see, a son. I can give you a son, and if, you, if I give you this son, then you will love me, is the way she's thinking about this. She names Reuben, meaning, see a son. And then Simeon there in verse 33, which means to hear. The name Simeon means to hear. Verse 33 says, She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, He has given me this son also. The Lord hears me. And because He has heard me, I will name my son Simeon, meaning to hear. And then a third son, Levi, which means attached. Verse 34 says, again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Levi means attached. Now notice, with each one of these three sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, they are named in such a way to reflect what Leah doesn't have, namely Jacob's affection. She names her sons to react to what she doesn't have. And that's what makes the fourth son, Judah, stand out. In verse 35, 
She bears a son, Judah, and Judah's name means to praise. Because verse 35 of chapter 29 says, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. You see, with the first three sons, she focuses on what she does not have by way of Jacob's affection. But then in the fourth son, Judah, she names him in accord with God's blessing. Taking her attention away from her circumstances and rather toward what the Lord is doing to her and for her and by her in this fourth son, Judah, who, by the way, is the son of the covenant. We'll see that much later down the line. Well, Rachel, of course, can't stand the fact that her sister already has four children. So she says at the beginning of chapter 30 to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. Now we're reading this text, and of course we are centuries removed from the actual action itself, but you can put flesh and blood on all of this and and see the tears or the rage in Leah's eyes saying to Jacob, I cannot have my sister, who you don't even love, have children and I not. Give me children or I shall die. Jacob responds correctly, because he's finally in a situation that he can't manipulate. Jacob can't do anything about Rachel's barrenness. This is why he says there, Am I in the place of God? In verse 2. Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? But the pain of Rachel's barrenness results in her decision to manipulate rather than trust. Setting forward her servant Bilhah, who bears Dan, that name means to judge Rachel takes this as the Lord giving her a son, even though it comes by way of Bilhah, even though uh, believing that the Lord has vindicated her and brought justice for her. See, finally, I have a child, even though I didn't bear it. And then Bilhah also bears Naphtali, which means struggle or wrestle. Rachel considers these sons her sons and sees them as this final blow towards her older sister. Rachel thinks that she has struggled and wrestled and prevailed, which is why she names the son Naphtali, because it seems that Leah's done having children and Rachel, by way of uh, Bilhah, has the last of them. And we're just getting started here, though, right? Leah doesn't want Rachel to have the baby of the family, this messed up family. So she says, just like Rachel puts forward her servant, Zilpah, who bears Gad, meaning luck, and Asher, meaning happy. Apparently, she hasn't learned the lesson from uh, naming Judah and has returned to naming children in competition with Rachel again. Not naming them in accord with God, but in accord with this competition. And if you think the conflict can't get any worse... Then comes this whole mandrake episode when the firstborn son, Reuben, is apparently old enough to be out gathering mandrakes. A mandrake is a root of the nightshade family believed to aid in conception. It's an aphrodisiac in this culture. Rachel wants Reuben's mandrakes, and so Leah and Rachel barter for them. Leah gets Jacob. Rachel gets the mandrakes, and then Jacob. And by the way, Jacob comes off in the midst of this a total oaf, doesn't he? Seemingly passively, what in the world are you doing? There's no, there's no prize here in Jacob himself. But from this comes Issachar is born to Leah, which means wages. I have bought my husband and now named my son Issachar, meaning wages. And then a sixth son, Zebulun, honor or exalt. And then finally, a daughter. And you think to yourself, Lord, help that little girl. And all of her brothers... <laughs> And then finally we read in verse 22 that the Lord finally remembered Rachel. 
The Lord remembered Rachel and she gives birth to a son, Joseph, which means to take away because she thinks the Lord has taken away her reproach. And I want you to notice there in verse 22 and 23 and 24 that this is the first time that Rachel has used the name of the Lord. She has spoken of God generally, but here she calls out to the name of the God of the covenant. In verse 24, may the Lord add to me another son. God has taken away my reproach. She uses the covenant name of God for the first time. And it says perhaps that she has finally learned after all of her envy and all of her struggle that she has finally learned to look to the Lord and trust in His covenant promises rather than her outward circumstances and envious relationship with her older sister Leah. Because what's happening in this chapter is that functionally Jacob and his wives are totally ignoring God's word and His promises. But even when God's people ignore His word and promises, God is always at work to fulfill His word and promise. Because when all is said and done here, there's 12 children, 11 sons, one daughter, Talia, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dinah, to, to Bilhah, Dan, Nathali, to Zilpah, Gad, Asher, and to Rachel, Joseph. What started out with Jacob having, at the beginning of chapter 29, no wives and no children now has two wives and twelve children, and you think to yourself, what a mess. What a mess. So what should we say? That's what we should see. We should see the development of the family, but now what should we say? Well, let's address this issue first of all. This issue that is commonly present, especially in the patriarchal era of the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis, this issue of multiple wives. Isn't this a problem? Answer, yes. Yes. Yes, of course it is. Uh, for Jacob to have multiple wives is clearly in violation of God's creation ordinance where he says the ideal purpose is one man and one woman in one marriage. And although it was acceptable by the current social local conventions to have multiple wives and even, to be sure, concubines by way of those wives, Abraham had them, Isaac had them, Jacob is having them, it doesn't make it right. In fact, we should call for what it is. Sin, isn't it? But the pages of the Old Testament report these details, but don't approve of them. They report without approval, and quite frankly, this whole narrative is barely suitable for public consumption. But it is sinful, of course. This is from the same Moses who writes in the seventh commandment that you shall not commit adultery. Let's be clear about this. This is not approving of all this reality, but merely reporting of it. And Moses is here telling this story. Moses is recording the book of Genesis, and he's recording it to the nation of Israel. And as he is doing it, he is saying to the nation of Israel, if you can fast forward in your minds for a moment, after they've come out of Egypt, as they're going into the promised land, and he is saying, by the way, people, do you want to know how this whole family got started? It got started like this. Moses is here telling the genesis of the family story of the nation of Israel and saying, people, this is our story. This mess is how we got started. This nation of 12 tribes comes from these 12 children. 
In fact, if you were to look into the pages of the New Testament in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew reports that Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Now that's significant because usually genealogies just focus on one portion of a generation, but there at the level of Jacob's sons, it says that Jacob bore Judah, who is the covenant son, and the brothers. Normally, you don't have a multiplicity of one generation mentioned, except for the fact that these brothers represent the 12 tribes of Israel. The covenant line goes through Judah, but these brothers who came about by these conniving, manipulative measures at the end of 29 and 30 of Genesis are the birth of the nation of Israel itself. Now listen, if you were making this up, you would never write it this way. You would never make this up because this is the beginning of the great nation of Israel. If you were making up the story, you would make up some great exalted tale of royalty and lavishness and glory and instead what you have is polygamy and sin and adultery, two women and their concubines, says Moses. And some people might say, what a contradiction. The Bible is just full of contradictions, isn't it? Because the Bible says, don't commit adultery, and here you have this story in Genesis 29 and 30. And to that we, of course, address what we've already said, but we also say that God's purposes for His people account for the fact that they're sinners. God's purposes for His people accounts for the fact that they're sinners. That's why His plan is the plan of redemption in the first place. Hear me very clearly. God is not gracious to His people because they have earned it, but because they desperately need it. And this family is desperately in need of grace. And it is by way of this family that God is going to bring about the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ. That's what we should say. And finally, what should we do by way of application seeing these characters? What should we learn from Jacob? Hopefully we should learn something of humility. He says, am I God finally coming to the place of realizing that he is not himself? He can't manipulate his way through life. And you know what? What's the best way to untangle something? You take it back the way it came. You got to work the knot backwards. And Jacob has gotten himself to this place because of the constant manipulation and scheming and lying. And here now around him, the galaxy of his family, scheming and manipulating and lying even to him as God is working backwards to untangle the mess that Jacob has got himself into. And God often, by way of correction and discipline, has to work backward the mess that we entangle ourselves in as he teaches us that that is not the way to live and to walk. You see, Jacob needs to learn to trust in the God of the covenant. Jacob needs to learn to trust God's promises, not be some oaf of a passive person being manipulated. We need to learn from Leah, the first wife, that she needs to look to the Lord and honor Him. And she does that seemingly at first, but then forgets, goes back to naming her children in competition with her sister, learning to honor God but forgetting. And that's oftentimes just like us who, who walk in some manner of consistency for a time and then swing back the other way and have to be brought back again and again. Leah is stumbling along the path of obedience which is how everybody walks along the path of obedience, stumbling all the way, but needing to learn and trust still again. 
That life isn't about envy and life isn't about comparing myself and life is more about living and trusting in the Lord. Or what about Rachel, who having to learn the hard way that she can't manipulate the Lord herself, that there's foolishness in that, and waiting until the very end of this episode to finally say, let me bless the Lord. I mean, how many times have we gone through circumstances or events and we don't learn the lesson until the end, right? And then you say, oh, finally, that's what I see. But one of the things it means to live in maturing as a growing Christian is to realize to trust the Lord in the midst and walk in the ways of obedience in the midst of our troubles rather than waiting to the end to figure out, as it were, that God was with me all along. Instead, learning to trust that, no, He's with me even when I can't quite discern it or see it or feel it. We learn that lesson from Rachel. But ultimately, of course, this passage, like every passage of Scripture, is saying... Do you see what the Lord does? Do you see how skillful His sovereign hand is working the ways of His infinitely wise providence to bring about His purposes? Watch what the Lord does. How He weaves together in His sovereign will both accounting for our weaknesses and failing in sins to bring about His wonderful purposes. Everybody likes to use the metaphor that the God's sovereign purposes are like a tapestry where on the one side all you see is the mess of knots woven together and they don't make any sense until you flip it over and see this beautiful picture that's been crafted. And that's what the Lord does. As he weaves together all of us types of people, namely sinners, in our mistakes and failings and stumbling along the path of obedience, and he brings about his sovereign purposes even as we give it our best shot to screw it up. And there is the Lord working out his purposes and working his sovereign will because God redeems the messes that we make. Isn't that really the point of this text? That God can redeem the mess that I make of my life. (laughs) That we must learn to do, as we'll sing together in just a moment, to be stayed upon Jehovah and find perfect peace and rest. Rather than living in unrestlessness and anxiety and fear, to learn to trust God in the midst even when we can't see. That's the lesson from this text, to be sure. A lesson for you and for me. That if we find ourselves in a mess, very much of our own making, or perhaps as a result of somebody else scheming to sin against us, it is only by trusting in the Lord that we learn to see the web untangled and learn to see His sovereign purposes become clear as we see that's what He was doing all along and I never knew. And that's what He was trying to teach me all along and I couldn't see it at the time. But he's good. I was in a moment of darkness where I've never said the Lord is good. But I've seen that behind the clouds he hides his smiling face. He's good in all that he does. See friends, God's grace is not intended to give us everything we want. It's intended to transform us into everything he wants us to be. The promise of offspring in the covenant moves this story forward and ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And His coming is thousands of years yet in the future to Genesis chapter 30. But God is preparing the way. He's laying the foundation for Jesus to come and to redeem this family, this messy family of which you and I are very much a part. 
In the end, we remember that this family story is our family story, the story of the people of God, and it highlights the fact that the messes that we make, the messes that we make are not just because we are mistake makers, but because we are fundamentally sinners. And that's why Jesus has come, not to fix our mistakes, but to save us from our sins and all the mess that those sins create in us and around us. Of those sins, there are many. In this text, the sins are manifold. But thanks be to God that there is more mercy in Jesus Christ than there is sin in Jacob. There is more mercy in Jesus Christ than there is sin in Leah and Rachel and me and you. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the Scriptures. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would plant deeply within us those spiritual truths which you intend to flower in us and bear fruit, that we might be transformed to be more faithful, more obedient, more loving, more kind, more patient. Oh Lord, do that work in us by your Spirit, even as you have given your Son, Jesus Christ, to us to die for our sins and be raised for our justification that we might have new life in Him. Help us to walk in that new life, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.